Here's our series on aging in Portland. Retired or rewired? What it's like getting old in a youth-centered city. Are you up for that challenge? We'll bring you lots of views, but you'll have to answer this question for yourself. Is Portland a good place in which to grow old? Today, KBU is looking ahead to a time when you're getting old. Maybe you are already old. No, we know you're probably not old now. As one of our guests said, old is 10 years older than I am at this moment. But you'll get there someday, and we're going to give you some ideas that may be useful as you head down that road. This is the first episode in a brief series about what it means to get old, and specifically, what it means to get old in Portland, Oregon. KBU itself is 50 years old this year, still young in our view. While the station prides itself on engaging the youth community in Portland, and we do a lot of programming and training aimed at youth, the average age of our listeners is 58 years. That's not old, but it's old enough that we can see a little of the road ahead, and we ask, what will it be like? In this 20-part series, we'll be covering the process of aging in Portland, and we have a specific area of interest. What does it mean to get old in a city that celebrates youth? Is it better to get old here by comparison to, say, getting old in Sacramento or Sarasota or Savannah? What does Portland have to offer the elderly? Is Portland making any special efforts to make Portland a friendly place for the elderly? Is this really a city where one would want to retire? Okay, that's the big picture, but first we have to ask, who are the elderly? What does the term mean? How big is this demographic in the Portland metro area? How important is it in the city? What's happening with the elderly here? Let's talk demographics. Here's city demographer Uma Krishnan putting some numbers to the story. Dr. Krishnan, welcome to KABU. Thank you very much, Tom. I requested your help in understanding and establishing a basis of factual information about older people in the city. I believe you're saying older residents are those 65 years of age or older. Is that right? That is absolutely right. There was this agreement, there was a plan for aging in place, and that plan defined older adults as 65 and older. And what? Uh, how many of those folks are there here in the city of Portland, and what proportion of the population do they make up? We have over 72,000 older adults in uh, our wonderful city, and they make up about 12% of the city's population. Big number and big share. No, we are younger than the metro area. We are younger than, much younger than Oregon, and, um, and we are definitely younger than the, the country as a whole. And by younger, what I mean is our share of older adults right. is smaller. Right. I know that women live longer than men in general. There's so many more women, is that right? There are 10,000 more 65 and older women than men. What's more interesting is of this 10,000, nearly 50% of this number, like not truly 50%, but 4,000 plus, that difference is because there are 4,000 plus more women who are 85 and older 
And this kind of totally, um, it aligns with the fact that women have a longer life expectancy. If you look at the older adults, um, 85% of them self-identify as white, whereas the city, it's like 78% identify as white, and, and the city is getting more diverse. So why is that sheer different with age? So part of the difference is really tied to the fact that as you grow older, that's when the migration slows down. And unless, you know, it was, uh, tie, it was tied to family-related or other reasons, the migration is really slow as you get older, 65 or 75. So a lot of the new migrants who come in, uh, they are definitely younger. The percentage of people who are disabled in this elderly group, that must be high, is it? But I was also surprised to see that it's not like everybody 65 a year and older, they are the ones with the disability. So if you look at census provides data and you look, look at the distribution, um, so as a city, 13% of Portlanders have identified they have some disability status or the other, and that's like close to 79,500 people or something. And 33% of that... Um, are older adults. So uh, older adults make up like oh, close to one-third. One-third. One I was going to say about... 33%. Tw- yeah, about about twenty, <laughs> about 26,000 of the elderly population are are in are part of the disabled group. That is right. Right, okay. So our, our elderly, so many of them are healthy. So I was surprised in your analysis that a lot of older people have worked in the past year, full-time or part-time. Tell us about that. This is the one, just over one-fifth, like 21% of older adults have either worked full-time or they have worked part-time in 2016. So we have around 5,200 who worked full-time and nearly double that number, 10,000 have worked part-time. Here's a more complicated question. From the perspective of these demographic figures, is Portland a good place to be a retired person? How would you answer that? If you were 65 and older and you're living in Portland, it truly depends where you live. And and that would answer whether it's a great place to live or maybe it's not that great a place to retire. Or maybe not a good place at all. Possibly. I don't think I want to say that. Okay, so (laughs) how does it... Because I love the city. I I don't want to say that. So how does it break down by where you live, whether this is a good place to live? So here, here is what uh, the Housing Bureau has done this analysis. It's it's called the Access to Opportunity, Opportunity Mapping, where though it's a spatial exercise, you know, we take access to public transportation, pedestrian infrastructure, proximity to, you know, healthy living resources. This includes open spaces, uh, grocery stores, things like that, uh, then access to employment, and then, um, though this might seem less relevant for 65 and older, but perhaps they are volunteering or picking up a grandkid or something, uh, proximity to quality education. These are good schools. So if place has scores high on these indicators, then, you know, it's, it's dark. If a place is 
kind of somewhere in the middle. It's as media, medium access to opportunity. And, and as you kind of move further out from the city towards the east, and um, you see um, the heat maps start, you know, they are less and less deep. Um, they're not as dark. And that means you're living in areas that need to are low in opportunity. So if you are an older adult who is not cost burden, and by cost burden I mean they're not paying more than 30% of their income towards housing costs and living in any of these high opportunity areas or even medium to some extent, Portland is an absolutely wonderful place to retire um, or restart or whatever. But if you're living... If you're living in these um, areas with lower opportunity and you're actually cost burden or you're, um, uh, living below poverty status or you have disability issues, um, and, and, and by cost burden I, I mean you're paying a lot towards housing costs, not necessarily the right place to retire. Uh, doctor, are you saying that it's better to, if you're wealthy no matter where you live, or is it is there some aspect of living in the city that makes it better regardless of your income? There are aspects um, that makes it better, and, and there isn't like this one-to-one correspondence that if you are high income, then um, uh, that's the only way you can live in in these um, high areas of opportunity. Um, the city has worked consciously and uh, towards putting a lot of affordable housing in in these areas with high opportunity. And, and the central city, um, which is not a census geography, it's a planning geography. Um, there are a lot of these um, affordable units or regulated units where uh, to live there you have to actually not be making that much. And if you qualify, uh, you get to live in these units and have um, access to all these things that are really essential uh, to have a good quality of life. I do see areas here, for example, in south southeast Portland, which is not necessarily a wealthy area, although there are some you know, very wealthy people here in southwest southeast. Mm-hmm. I see areas even around Cabo and close to the center of the city that are come out well in your analysis, good places to live. Is that right? Yes. So being closer to the functions at the center of the city can be a part of, of creating a good place to live. Absolutely. And and the whole um, effort of the city for the in the next 25 years, and if you look towards our long-range plan, the comprehensive plan, the intent is that we want to make every neighborhood, you know, high in opportunities. And here's where we'll be taking you over the next four months. We start with some general discussion of aging Portland. You'll meet Karen Brown Wilson, who's been a leader in this region since the 1980s and is now a national figure. She's known as the mother of assisted living in Oregon. She now works in Oregon and around the world in finding housing solutions for the elderly. In our third episode, we'll give you a medical overview of the aging process from Dr. Mark Williams, geriatrician in Wilmington, North Carolina, author of the bestseller, The Art and Science of Aging Well, a physician's guide to the process of aging. He'll talk about some of the myths associated with aging and offer his recommendations for aging well, including ways to keep your brain young. 
Here he speaks on the challenge of managing our emotions as we age. Why is it important to manage your emotions as you age? What tool and what tools do you suggest we use to do that? Well, I think that first off, aging is no refuge from an empty life. So by managing our emotions, I think a real powerful aging accelerator is keeping in negative emotions. It's kind of like if you keep negative emotions inside, anger, fear, grief, and you never give them an outlet, it's kind of like driving down the interstate highway with one foot stomped down on the accelerator and another foot pressed down on the gas, on the brake, sorry, the accelerator and the brake. We'll make a visit to the Hollywood Community Center and see what programs for the elderly are like in one of Portland's core neighborhoods. You'll meet director Amber Johnson, hear from some of the folks who use the center, and sit in on a ukulele class. In episode five, we talk with City Commissioner Nick Fish, a supporter of elderly interests for nearly his whole life in politics, about the city's vision for the elderly. And you'll hear from Jay Bloom, Portland activist on aging. We'll be asking the commissioner, is Portland ready for the demographic shift that it's facing? We meet with the Portland Institute on Aging's director, Dr. Margaret Neal, and Dr. Alan De La Torre. Neal has been studying aging issues in Portland for over a decade and was one of the key figures in the city's participation in the World Health Organization's Age-Friendly Cities Project. We'll talk about housing, neighborhoods, and city policies, where we are in Portland, and where we're going. Next are episodes on financial and legal issues. Financing is complicated, so we decided to focus on just one issue that affects many elderly people in the Portland area. Is there some value in your home, and are you trying to think of ways to use that value to improve the quality of life as you live it now? We'll be talking with a lending specialist, Rachel Moler, who knows a lot about reverse mortgages, equity loans, and other matters of financial planning related to real estate. You won't want to miss this. Here's Rachel on reverse equity. Home equity conversion mortgage lending. It's also known as reverse mortgage. I'm here because it is the only option in most situations. It's intensely regulated. It's not accessible to everyone. People still have to have a financial review because if they can't pay, if they don't have enough income one way or another to pay their taxes and insurance, they're not going to qualify for that loan either. But basically what it means is you have to be 62 years or older, and in that age bracket, you can access a certain percentage of the equity of your house. Whatever amount is available to people, it's regulated, it's based on their age, it's based on the value of the house. They'll have that money available. The first thing it has to do is pay off any mortgage you have on the house. So if you have a lien or a mortgage, that has to go away. They have access to some cash. They can take it as a line of credit, which actually is a growth rate. They can take it as cash or they can take it as payments. That type of mortgage can be very useful, but sometimes it sounds too good to be true. Here's attorney Chaz Horner of Eugene talking about credit issues in general and the pitfalls that we need to watch for. It is a a tactic very well uh, established in the industry. You make the loan seem easy, 
and you mention only as much about the cost as the law requires you to. And you do it in the smallest print you possibly can at the bottom of the screen or in really fast words at the end of the radio ad. So, you know, whether uh, really regardless of whether it's a loan, a reverse mortgage, credit card, even insurance products, it's just important to be very shrewd because the folks who are selling these things know what they're doing. And their one goal is to make sure that they are uh, making as much money as possible off the credit offer. On the legal side, in Episode 8, there's a new booklet from the Oregon Bar Association that we'll discuss with author Catery Walsh of the State Bar. It covers the basics, creating a will, power of attorney, living will, and other documents that you will want to have in order. And we'll tell you how you can get that information on the Internet and get started on or update your essential legal documents. There's a group here, Elders in Action, that can show you ways to get involved through work and volunteer opportunities. These are people you'll want to meet if you're interested in staying active and involved in the community. We introduce these folks in Episode 8. One of the buzzwords these days in gerontology circles is intergenerational planning. We'll be speaking with an Oregon woman, Donna Butts, who runs an association in Washington, D.C., that works on this very issue. Her group partners with a housing organization in North Portland. Donna will, will be citing some examples of the best intergenerational programs from around the nation. We'll take up the subject of physical fitness and exercise in Chapter 11. We'll review the options for staying active and getting the exercise you need. This is Mike Waters from Timberline Fitness Center in Corvallis, giving us a different perspective on the idea of exercise. Exercise is medicine for adults. It's not really for athletic feats. Now, some people, like myself, uh, I'm a runner. Back in the 70s, it was to prevent heart, heart disease was the big one. And now, as we've done the research, it's, it's also preventing and even managing cancer. According to figures from the Center for the Disease Control, one out of 10 Oregonians over the age of 65 reports that they are in some stage of dementia. Hmm, what does that mean? What is dementia? What forms does it take? And what, if any, are the treatment options? We'll devote more than one show to the different issues of brain health. This episode 12 brings you co-authors Ann Hill and Dr. Marion Hodges from the Providence Group here in Portland who've written an important series on the treatment of dementia. Here's Dr. Lisa McGuire of the CDC speaking on the prevalence of dementia in our population. There's a term you use that seems pretty obvious, but I wonder, there's a, the term is cognitive decline. And what's the connection between cognitive decline and dementia, or when does cognitive decline become dementia? Well, cognitive decline is a continuum, and it can occur from somebody having very early signs of forgetfulness, which might be um, forgetting their keys and doing so more frequently, and it might progress into a disease state that is diagnosed by a physician as a specific type of dementia such as Alzheimer's disease. So anywhere on that continuum we refer to as cognitive decline. 
And the you, you gather statistics on this. I, I understand that they are self-reported. People determine whether they feel they're in cognitive decline. Is that right? Right. CDC collects data on a whole variety of health topics across the United States, and CDC as a public health agency is, is really charged with monitoring the health of our nation. And one way we do that at CDC is through behavior risk factors surveillance system, which is the largest telephone survey on health actually in the whole world. And with this survey, um, each state decides which questions they would like to ask on their state survey, and they call individuals within their state to complete the information on the survey. So one of the types of things that we ask people about from the CDC is a thing referred to as subjective cognitive decline, which is really a self-evaluation of their memory. And so in other words, how do they interpret their memory uh, functioning within the past year. And for public health professionals, this is really important because this is an indicator of future burden and needs that may occur in the healthcare system, long-term services and supports, and in communities. We do know in Oregon in 2016 that one out of nine people residing in Oregon indicate that they have had noticeable changes in their memory and confusion in the past year. I thought that the, the decline of memory was inevitable with age. Is, am I wrong in that? Well, there are n what we refer to as normal changes in memory, and then those are that are, can be more of a disease state. So this is one reason why at CDC we recommend that if you're having some changes in your memory, especially if those changes are interfering with your ability to engage in social activities, work, or volunteering, that you speak to a health care provider about your concerns, and they can let you know if it is just a normal, normal aging process that's going on or if there's something else going on that could be a type of dementia. We know that in Oregon, one out of six people who are a caregiver to a friend or family member are caring to, for someone who is an older person, and also they have a child in the home that they're caring for as well. And about a third of those caregivers in Oregon are providing 20 or more hours a week caring for a friend or family member. 5.5 million adults in the United States that have Alzheimer's disease currently. We know that Alzheimer's disease is one of the most costly diseases in the U.S., $259 billion in 2017. And Alzheimer's disease is the fifth leading cause of death for people 65 years old and older. Dr. McGuire, thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much. Scamming elders is big business, and it's getting bigger. We'll talk with Ellen Clem in Episode 13. Ellen directs the Consumer Fraud Division of the Office of the State Attorney General. Ellen will speak about some of the scams that are out there and some simple ways to avoid becoming a victim. We talked about dementia with Ann Hill and Dr. Marion Hodges of the Providence Center, and we got a national perspective on Alzheimer's, from Dr. Lisa McGuire of the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta. Fortunately, we have right here in Portland the Layton Institute, a group at OHSU that works with patients and conducts research. Dr. Allison Lindauer talks with us in Episode 14 on what we know of the origin of this disease, how we recognize it, and ways to care for it. You'll find out why Alzheimer's is, in some ways, a woman's disease. Here's Dr. Lindauer putting Alzheimer's in a social context. 
dementia is a women's problem. Two-thirds of people with dementia are women, and two-thirds of the people that take care of those with dementia are women. So when a woman comes in, they'll typically come in with their mother, and they'll say things like, she used to be a really great cook, but now she can't quite make soup, or she can't even operate the microwave anymore, or she gets lost driving, and I'm worried about her. By this point, we've introduced you to some of the most important resources for elderly people in the area. In episode 15, you'll meet a Portlander, Dr. Susan Toll, who's made a contribution of national importance. Dr. Toll created a system related to what are called physician orders for life-sustaining treatment, or PULST, P-O-L-S-T. We'll learn what this term means and why it could be important to you. The PULST program is one component of many different things that have happened in Oregon extensive education, overcoming some systems problems that made it difficult to have wishes honored. There are many factors at work, but the net result is Oregonians who wish to stay near the end of life at home and die in their own bed are more likely to do so than in other states. In all the discussions of health and illness, there's often the unsung caregiver who carries the load. You may be or have been in that role, or you may see it in your future in some way. In episode 16, we meet Vicki Kind, a nationally prominent bioethicist whose writings on caregiving provide a guide for those difficult conversations and making the hardest family decisions. You want to hear Vicki make sense out of the most complex problems. Here she is with some recommendations about how we can determine whether a loved one can continue to take care of themselves. What we want to do is figure out, is the person safe? And an easy way that I explain this to families is, can your person connect the dots? Can they hold enough pieces of information together and remember all the details all at the same time so they can say, yes, that is a good idea, or no, that is not a good idea. So an example might be, can the person say, oh dear, there's a fire, I should leave the building, I should call 911. Those are all separate things that they have to think. It's not just memory, it's not just being, it's can they process, do they have what's called executive functioning. Maybe you've heard of something called the village movement. From what we can see, it's one of the most important community-based movements that can positively affect elderly in many locations and regardless of one's economic level or social situation. In episode 17, we'll be speaking with Lynn Trainer and Lee Radovich on the villages of Portland. There are eight and two under development. What membership can do for you and how to set up a village in case you want to do that. This is Lynn on being self-sufficient in finding ways to let us age in our own homes. 90% of people, according to an AARP study, really would prefer to age at home. And the resources aren't there, just like we don't have resources for schools and everything. So how are we going to do that? We're going to have to figure that out because if we wait for government to figure it out, there's going to be a whole lot of people in trouble. You might ask, what's the future of aging? Won't there come a day when science will engineer indefinitely long lifespans, at least for those who want that, and can afford it? 
To raise this question, we go to the world-famous AGED Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. We'll talk with Julie Miller about research going on in Cambridge. This is Julie of the MIT Lab. Here's what we know, Tom. The population of people ages 65 and older is expected to double by the year 2050. The population of people ages 85 and older is expected to triple by 2050. This is certainly the case in the United States and largely in many regions of the world. What this really unprecedented longevity means for both the United States and for so many other countries is that we are looking at disruptive demographics. Is there a vision for the elderly in Portland? Let's get back to Commissioner Nick Fish. We'll check his thoughts on that question and that of a few other leaders in the Portland community. What are we going to do with all those old folks in Portland? Finally, last episode number 20, we'll review what we've heard and learned in this odyssey. What are the most important lessons that we take from this? And what are the resources here in Portland that you can use to get you down that road with as much purpose and self-determination as possible? We'll answer that question that got us started. Is Portland a good place to retire? That's it for episode one. In the next episode, we'll be talking with Karen Brown Wilson, a national leader in elder care. You've been listening to our series on aging in Portland, retired or rewired. You can listen to any episode in this series or the entire series if you go to kboo.fm and look for the show under my name, Tom Flynn. Thanks for joining us today.